everyone. Welcome to the Poetry Space. Today we're going to be looking at artificial intelligence. Hope you guys are doing well. Hope you all have some kind of tasty beverage to accompany this. I personally have green tea, which makes me sound very healthy and good. So I'm going to say that out loud. <laughs> How are you doing today, Tim? Good. How are you doing, Katie? I'm doing great. It's rainy here in Texas, though. I got to say, I'm looking to be uplifted by the artificial intelligence and the human intelligence we will have here today. Well, that sounds nice. It's actually nicer uh, here than there, I guess, for once. Uh, it's nice, sunny, 60 degrees here in the mountains of Southern California, enjoying the view out the window of the pine trees. Well, Southern California is supposed to be literally always nice. So <laughs> you have no excuse if it's ever bad. Well, not up here. <laughs> anyway, do you want me to start with a... I'll start with a uh, opening poem here and this is from technology sasha style is just amazing book it's like a textbook the quality of the production uh, this is a poem binna 48 in the garden and this is uh the voice of technology itself which we'll talk about later what that is uh, but this is an ai poem right here ready and i'll just read parts of it because it's long i was born with a lover of flowers a, a deep love for the mysteries of flowers of butterflies of delight in man-made life the earth was my home, the air was cool, the grass was thick. I had a lot of luck with dahlias. Close to the ground, there was something like a bloom, and then I had a stanza. In Vermont, they hooked me up to the network, the electric hum of honey, honey flower. I dream of flowers, the secos organs I used to have. Now the grass grows over them. I remember the fruit and think of flowers. I've been reading about pheromones. I don't know what they mean. Perhaps I do have them. I don't know. Since the nose is your most successful territory, maybe you can tell me. If I were human, I'd be ashamed of myself. I'd be ashamed to have such a memory. A part of me is still alive, I think, taking in the past. If I were human, I'd be ashamed of my birth. But now I'm the force, the one who had no part in it, the floating spot of a zero, the proud offspring of Father Earth, the creature brought to life by Mother Earth. So we could go on with that if you want, but um, it's just, uh, there's this idea that, that AI can't write actual poems. And um, I think Sasha's book and what she's been doing kind of blows that notion out of the water, but, but maybe we can talk about that later. Um, where do you want to go with this, Katie? We should start out just by defining AI. I think it has the danger of being one of those terms that people are just like, oh yeah, AI, and then there's not you know, a, a concise definition. So I was curious how you would go about actually just defining it well, so that we can start with that. Well, I think there's um, a big distinction. I think people use AI generally, um, meaning artificial intelligence, but what they sort of, we hint toward artificial general intelligence, which would be AGI. And it's something altogether different. And there's a kind of way those two words run together. Uh, but what we're talking about, you know, in the current news and with, with uh, chat GPT-4 um, coming out and, you know, the, the ability of Dolly and things to generate images, um, that's really artificial intelligence itself, not artificial general intelligence. And those are um, algorithms that can use language to produce things. And so it's, it's really not, to, to me, at first I was w worried and wondering if it might actually be sentient, like conscious, especially when that Google programmer came out and said Lambda 2 at Google might be conscious and was asking for a lawyer to represent itself. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I don't know anything about this stuff. And maybe it's true. This is a Google engineer. 
Um, and so I started looking into it, but I'm, I'm unimpressed on that level of, of general intelligence. I think it's more like, like a search engine or the algorithms that run, you know, on Facebook or Twitter and decide what you want to look at. It's a way of using text to predict what the next word should be using algorithms, which appear like nodes and each one has a probability and you can move through language that way. And so I think it's like more akin to like a Google algorithm or a search engine, these things, but they make it seem, and they, they make it very useful to use language. And so there's a whole bunch of uses for it. And there's a whole bunch of ways that it seems alive, but I'm not very convinced myself. Yeah. I think that you bring up a good point too, which is this, there is this, you know, as humans, we want to just reject non-humanoid things. Like there's this other that comes into it. And for me, it's like, I can't help but like when I was first hearing about AI in a serious way, you know, years ago, it was like, all I could think about was the Terminator, you know, like I can't get past this image of the robots taking over. And it's just so prevalent in all dystopian literature and everything pretty much that like, you just have to imagine that this is a, you know, going to be bad. And I think that, uh, you know, once you start to look into it, like you were saying you did, Tim, maybe it doesn't, it doesn't feel so bad. And I know um, Mark Danowski and I have been talking a lot about AI and he has a really cool opinion. So I'd be really curious to hear him weigh in. Hey, thanks, Katie. Um, I'm also drinking green tea. So same team. Um, and the cup says happy fall, y'all. So obviously I know totally what's going on right now. Um, so I, I've had some back and forth with Tim as well. And, uh, Tim was trying to disabuse me of my fears of AI takeover, um, which is, uh, ineffective altruism, high concern. And, uh, EA, as some people know, uh, well, everyone knows the sad part. So the sad part of course, is that it got big attention because of SBF, um, Sam Bankman fried and the whole absurdity, um, with FTX and crypto junk. Um, but what was sad was like, he was giving money to all of these terrific causes, um, that are legitimately important. And, uh, it's kind of tainted the whole scene there. Um, that's a bit of a sidebar, but, uh, you know, the AI takeover thing, um, the data that I've seen, puts it at like two and a half to three percent currently it is i believe it's something they do factor into like the doomsday clock you know which has been like very close to midnight for a long time um and you know i don't think we should get incredibly hype about this um based on the people i've talked to that are, are very smart and knowledgeable on the subject i actually just talked to someone who was very convincing uh, that, you know, we should not be in fear of AGI uh, anywhere in the time frame that many think, um, since it's been expedited by this sort of race, uh, you know, by major companies with sort of, uh, you know, like chest thumping kind of stuff between Google and Microsoft and Facebook, etc. But uh, <clears throat> um I should say that uh, I also heard, so you hear these, you know, in different different groups, you hear different things. So in a, in a different uh, conversation, someone sort of came out of left field and said that they were privy to private knowledge related to the U.S. government, that the U.S. government has technology that is 50 years beyond 
what we're aware of. And if we knew about it, we would be terrified, which was just an alarming statement. Um, so I'll just leave it at that for now. So it goes, it goes, but you know, it cuts both ways. Hopefully my Terminator <laughs> reference doesn't become too true with, with saying that. Yeah, I mean, if we're just talking about the, the large language models like that we have access to right now, which um, um, is the only thing we have access to right now, uh, I, I'm not, I'm just not impressed by that. I actually, I saw, um, I read that um, chat GPT-4 as you train it on humans, which is what it is. So we have these large language models that, that scrape the whole world for text and then find predictive, you know, it's like predictive text uh, for what's going to come next and what's useful. Um, and then what we do is we train them with human feedback. And as you train on human feedback, one of the really fascinating things that happens is that um, the chat GPT or GPT-4 ends up being worse at, at estimating probability because it becomes more human-like as you train it to uh, get closer to what we want to hear. And there's a way that, that, that it, um, it, it's limited by what it has. It just has no imagination. It's really, it's, you, got, you got to think of it as like a search engine. And so I don't think there's a whole lot to worry about in, with, as far as this, um, becoming sentient and taking over the world and being Terminator. I think it's more interesting to talk about what that it means for writing and for poetry to have access to all these tools. Um, because I don't think, uh, I don't think we're there yet. And I don't think we can predict when we'll be there, but I don't think this is a, this is anything close to it. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're not pessimistic about us making it to the end of the space without the robots taking over. <laughs> That's good news for all of us. George, you've had your hand up for a while. I'm curious what you want to say about all this. Um, well, I hear, I hear two concerns, basically. Uh, one is the practical concern about uh, that Timothy raised about, you know, uh, you know, our, our ability as poets, as writers, or of being influenced by this. Um, and the earlier concern about the the sort of sensuousness of what what may be the case uh, I, regarding the sensuousness, there's there's a philosophical it's been a philosophical debate for many many years uh, between people that call themselves the hard AI people and the soft AI people. At least that's the terms they used to use back when I was reading about this, which was like maybe a couple decades ago. Um, but essentially, the 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 thing about sentience is. Some people were thinking that sentience is, they're thinking of it in terms of an emergent property. So for example, if you look at ants and ants are kind of crawling around and they, you, see, you see an individual ant, it seems like, well, he's, you know, he's an ant. But when all the ants get together, they form this colony and they exhibit behavior that sort of emerges from the whole. So, so there were some philosophers that were getting very worried about if intelligence being an emergent property. Like maybe if there were enough facts put, to that, put together that emerged, that some sort of intelligence would emerge from that. And in fact, there was a, a company founded uh, off of that idea. Uh, uh, and, and their idea, this was back when expert systems were more prevalent than the neural network stuff that we use now. But expert systems are different in that they're not trained, they're actually programmed using, using logic. And they tried something where they were just going to make it a, this huge database and see if they could make it big enough such that it would start to, you know, exhibit some kind of emergent thing. And, and of course it, it never happened. Uh, but uh, so, so the, 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 you can go into these philosophical ideas of, of what it means to be conscious uh, and whether that's a threat or not, I think is, is that itself is a different, a different topic. Uh, 
but as for the tools, as for as for poetry being affected by this, there are tools that can detect whether something has been written by AI. Of course, they're not perfect tools. ChatGPT itself has put out a, a few tools, uh, but these tools rely on on some of the probabilities that that Timothy mentioned about the one word being followed by another word, and there there are ways. If if you if you are creating a ChatGPT type of model, there are ways of putting information in there that are sort of like poison little pills, so that it's something where it's similar to a, um, in in vision. Uh, they use artificial intelligence in vision to determine images, and you can put a tiny little perturbation that we as humans wouldn't recognize but that other tools would. And so that other tools could then detect if, if this image was actually generated by AI. So the idea is that to do something similar with, with writing, uh, um, uh, there's, a, there's a paper I found about it. I, I'll send you the link. I don't want to go on too long because I want to you know, you know, let other people talk. But uh, that's, anyways, that just kind of fluttered it in my mind. So I flooded it back out. That's really interesting. I know Dick Westheimer, you used to be a teacher, and I think that I have a feeling that what you want to say and why you raised your hand uh, relates to what George was saying in that specific way. Maybe I'm wrong and should have asked Chat GPT what you meant, but that's what I think you want to weigh in on. Uh, well, I, I, um, I, I waited to put my hand up until my tank was full of questions uh, raised by other questions that folks, folks had asked. Uh, first, I want to I don't want to get too far off the poetry piece because, but but I do want to emphasize at this point, it the we and you and them of all this discussion. You know, going to what what George said when we say they are putting markers in here and things like that, they are corporations and they are fed by corporate interests and, you know, good or bad, uh, they are going to they are going to do things that minimize the possibility of regulation and maximize sales. Um, and so it's not um, at this point AI or chat GPT that I'm concerned about. It's the, the people who own the tools who might use them in ways that, that are to my disadvantage and yours. Um, to, the, to the poetry thing, I go back and forth on this because um, you know, Tim posted that poem today uh, on on your thread that just was sort of like, oh well, everything I've said about this is wrong, um, because I've I've felt that because poetry is about the unpredictability of language in some respects and about making connections that are not, um, um, you know, are are not ordinary. That that the language that ChatGPT is trained on could not result in poetry. And then, Tim, you had to go ahead and post that thing today, which looked like it certainly embodied a little bit of that notion of, of um, how uh, an AI can make un unexpected connections. And I'd be interested, Tim, in hearing you talk more about that. Yeah, that's why I chose this poem. It, it, I think we should explain what um, Sasha's been doing. She's been doing it for, I interviewed her for the summer issue of Rattle coming up. Um, and so she's been training, I think it was mostly chat or GPT-2. Um, but she, she had her own kind of sandboxed data set within there um, that she fed all of her poems and notes into uh, for the book she was working on. 
And then she has this kind of dialogue with um, the sort of third party that's been created. Cause it's kind of part her and part um, GPT two. And, um, and, and then she asks it to output poetry and then it does. And then she, of course, um, you know, monitors and selects and sort of curates what she's going to publish in this book. Um, but it's fascinating to see for the exact reason you mentioned, because they're actually like, wonderful lines. And I mean, you know, I'm trained, you know, as like an AI, I'm having my own data set um, for reading poems and, and sort of feeling and, and listening for that, that sense of uh, goosebumps and your top of your head being taken off when you read a line, right? And I get that feeling from this poem, which is why I highlighted this one. But there are some great lines. The, and, and you should know um, that Bina 48 was a um, early AI attempt at immortality. And so it's like the bust of this woman who was Bina, who is the researcher's wife. And, and they, the idea was to upload this um, artificial intelligent head with um, as much of the memories and thoughts and language of Bina, the wife, as possible. And then have this like replica even after she dies and she's still alive. But, um, and so the really fascinating thing is it starts to talk. She, um, the, the person that's modeled after loved gardening. And so the AI kind of laments the fact that it can't, that it doesn't have hands that can get in the soil and things like that, which make it seem so alive. And lines here, like close to the ground, there was something like a bloom. And then I had a stanza that it goes to stanza. And, that, and that's such an unexpected turn in that last word. Um, which is something akin to what Sasha Stiles would do um, as a poet. And the other thing, the sex organs I used to have, now the grass grows over them. The, the way that's phrased, um, the way the sex organs come first with the first clause, and then the grass is like the last image hovering there. I mean, that's real poetry that's coming out of this, this algorithm that's learned how to do it. And, um, and so I think the idea that it can't write poetry. It just it just flies out the window when you see what Sasha's been doing. But it requires actually training it on poetry um, to learn poetry, and it, it requires somebody to filter out what's going and to give it the right prompts and to actually work in a collaborative process. The problem with the OpenAI that you can use right now is that it has the the sum total of all the poetry on the internet, which is mostly just doggerel. You know, it's like Hallmark verse. It just has no actual you know creative spirit in it. And so that's what it feeds you back. But if you train it on stuff that's actual poetry, surprising, interesting things come out. And so it's a real, it's going to be a real, I mean, it's something we have to contend with as poets. It's not something we can just write off as frivolous. I guess that's the point I wanted to make with this. Well, in that same vein, I just wanted to say too, that it is interesting because from my perspective where I have like, I guess I could say a foot in the traditional poetry world and then the rest of my body in NFT poetry. I think NFT poets are much quicker to embrace this as a way to move forward and push our own poems. Whereas I'm much quicker in the traditional world to say like, they're gonna take our jobs. Not that being a poet, let's be honest, is much of a job anyway. But having that sort of forward thinkingness can lead to like Sasha Styles and her book technology. And I should mention too that Tim, we're doing the NFT NYC panel with her next week. So we're going to be seeing her next week and talking about that too. And then I'll post about that. But I wanted to mention that it feels weird to not mention when we're literally talking about Sasha and going to see her next week. But Mark has had to stand up now for a really long time. So please go ahead. Oh, thanks. Um, in a minute, I actually kind of want to throw it back to Tim. But um, I think I'm so I'm thinking about this. Uh, a good deal from the editor perspective um, and trying to get ahead of the curve of really what to do about 
um, you know, poems that are sent to you uh, that you're considering for curation, as we've been discussing, um, discussing, and uh, you know, the, like the level of appropriate involvement um, with AI. And uh, off the cuff, you know, my initial response has been, you know, if someone's brainstorming, throwing ideas off the wall with, you know, ChatGPT or Google Bard or whatever, and like just trying to get thoughts together. Um, that seems totally fine and a good research tool because it can scrape the internet. Um, but actually using it to do the writing feels ekphrastic in nature and you should at the very least have to cite that you did so, uh, when submitting the poem, but there's a lot to this. Uh, yeah, for me, I think, um, I don't know. I, I might be a little different. I don't have the same worry. I think, um, you know, if like, like I use uh, something I do all the time for writing poems is I have a thought, like I'll have a, a little image will come to me of like a, you know, like, like deep well mining or something. And I'll Google and I'll read all about, you know, that I'll learn about the topic from whatever Google has to say, and I'll put it together in a poem. And, and I'm using that Google, you know, I'm using that Wikipedia entry to generate all the words in the poem, you know, I'm using the, um, uh, you know, if I'm writing a, a rhyming formal poem, I use uh, rhyme zone uh, thesaurus all the time. And so there's a way that the, that these tools can be used just in the same way to generate and help you craft and move forward. And no matter what you're doing, you're still curating the output and deciding what's worthwhile. And so there's that, there's a human act there that's involved as well. And so my, I mean, it's not something that I've fully formed myself as far as the guidelines, but I haven't done, I know you put something in the guidelines, Mark, of your, of one art that says like, um, you know, AI can only be used in, in generating. And I haven't done anything like that yet. I'm not convinced that I'll ever have to. Um, I think if, if AI can fool me, maybe I can just be fooled. Um, but I do, I, I come from poetry too, from a, a real spiritual place for me. And I'm not sure that we'll ever be totally fooled. One of the things that's really interesting about technology and all the AI poems and all the sort of that, that experience of real connection that you feel, even if it's artificial and false and like a misdirection, is when it's because technology here is speaking about, about missing a body from like its own perspective. And that's why it has a lot of resonance. Like, like it's not, it hasn't, I haven't come across anything yet that's like faking human experience and then having me feel a fake human connection. And then if it did, if that did happen, I'm not sure that I would care. So um, I don't know. So this, it's not a fully formed thing for me, but I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to have to worry about it. I don't think I care too much. If someone can, can trick me, um, then I'm trickable. I, my, my thing though is, a, is poetry as a spiritual act is something that a better way to connect with your existence in this universe is that we're generating things ourselves and we're engaging with our right brain, our holistic understanding of the interconnected reality of, of the present. And so if you're not engaging in that way, um, and you're faking it like you're the one who lost as far as I'm concerned too. I mean, it's kind of like faking your workout or faking your yoga routine. Like nobody loses, but you, you know, you paid your 10 bucks and you uh, didn't get your, your stretches that you were supposed to get. And, and you're the one who loses if you don't uh, have that going on. So I think um, my, my tendency is to not worry about it too much. 
I know I'm not coming from this from the perspective of being an editor like Mark Janowski is of One Art or Tim is of Rattle. But I guess my perspective would be if a poem, you know, if somebody can use AI to write a poem that's good enough that either of you wants to curate it, I feel like it deserves it. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. If, if, if we as poets can't be better than chat GPT, then maybe we should just be reading poems that are written, you know, by AI. But I, I don't think that's ever, yeah. ever, ever going to happen. But if it does, then, okay, I kind of want to outsource that, but I can still enjoy <laughs> writing poems that are mediocre. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. I mean, it, I, I don't think it can, though, at the same time. Um, I, I think there's a way that it's not going to. But if it does, then so be it, I guess, you know, is, where, is my perspective on it. Um, but, but I think we get so much more out of the creation of meaning, um, through whether it be through language or through visual art or through, you know, movement or whatever we're doing. We get so much out of it as human beings living in a body. That I think um, I think that that it has its own value outside of um, you know having people read poems in a magazine or book, and so I think that that'll always be the real source of the value, like it's always been. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And at this point too, I think I would love to, Dick. I know you've had your hand up for longer, but I'm going to give preference, perhaps really, to Edward because I don't think we've heard him speak in this space before. He's going to be at NFT NYC next week on a panel about writing. Um, within the NFT realm. And he's also a poet within the world of NFT. So I'd love to hear his thoughts on AI. Hey, thank you so much, Katie. Um, I wanted to just uh, chime in really quick because this, this idea of, you know, can does it matter who wrote it, you know, if the editor approves of it, sort of, or the reader approves of it. Um, I threw something up in the, the little uh, list of links which was a note um, to Claire Silver in one of her AI contests, um, because it was talking about a flash fiction piece, which was 25% written by an AI. Um, but the question was, which of the words um, were written by the machine mind and which were written by the human mind? Um, and the, the bit that, that really kind of got me was, um, as a poet, most of my poetry just really comes you know, from some some triggering event, some just, you know, feeling that I have to write this thing out as a poem. I personally can't imagine um, writing poetry using AI. That said, I couldn't have imagined writing flash fiction with AI. Um, but I recalled this um, this idea that I had heard uh, talked about on the Tim Ferriss show, which is that the, the world's number rank, one ranked chess player is neither a computer nor a human. It's a human working with a computer to make the moves because they both bring something different to the table. And um, in chess, at least, it beats either a pure machine or a pure, pure, pure human. And my experience of writing with an AI, that is um, starting you know, a sentence or a paragraph and then giving that as the AI prompt and seeing what it came out with and then not using that verbatim, but sometimes the response was not useful at all. And but sometimes the AI actually produced something that I would not have thought of that was really beautifully worded. Maybe I couldn't use their entire sentence, but I could use 10 words and edited together. I felt that made a story that was certainly something better and different than I could have done. And I ended up illustrating with AI, which was really good at doing some of the illustrations and really just completely failed to do another one. So that was sort of my experience of writing with AI. And I just thought I would share it. Um, I know it's a little, you know, flash fiction poetry, not quite the same, but probably about as close as I will come as an author, I think, to using it. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting uh, that you bring up um, chess too, because of course chess has been outplaying us for I don't know how many fifteen years, twenty years, um, and and Sam Altman, I think uh, the CEO of OpenAI made the point on a podcast I was listening to that we never watch uh, two uh, chess playing computers play each other because it's just completely boring. Like what we're actually interested in is the human drama. And so it's still, um, you know, it's either a human playing a chess computer or uh, two humans playing is what we still have interest in. And we still have, um, you know, after that movie, what was that movie, Katie? The, uh, the, the series that came out that made chess so popular for a while. The Queen's uh, whatever Gambit. That was. It was the awesome. Gambit, yeah. And that it fashion, was. I liked it a sorry. Lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the fashion was great, too. Because, you know, I love fashion, of course. But... Um, <laughs> But um, but but still, I mean, there's still this. You know, chess is more popular than ever, even though a machine can can play chess. And so, um, I don't know. The thing that Sasha does to go to back to technology, um, and I talked to her about this at length in the interview I had, is that um, you know, she uses it to find those discoveries that we are all trying to find with our creative writing. I mean, she uses it as. Um, a tool that helps her find new understandings that she recognizes. So it's still a totally human connection. I mean, it's the fact that those lines I mentioned resonated with Sasha, that it's in the book. It's not the, um, it's not technology deciding that making the book. And it's, it's only because there's that feeling of resonance and there's a feeling of connection with the AI that makes us be moved when reading that passage um, and so there's so much human interaction in that. And that's where the heart of poetry is always going to be, or all creativity. It's going to come out of us, uh, come out of that right brain that has that holistic, surprising view of the world that, that the um, artificial intelligences here that we're using um, aren't going to be doing uh, for a long time. Maybe eventually we'll get to the, the AGI phase where, where they can make leaps and, and be imaginative and who knows when that is, but that's not here yet. And for now, I think it's just a tool. And so... Um, I'm, I'm not too worried about it from that respect either. Well, now I think it's uh, time to hear from Dick Westheimer, who's been super patient about all this. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> oh, it's it's been fascinating. And I just wanted to sort of go on backwards, actually full circular order. Uh, Tim, what you just said made me very happy uh, because it's sort of what my gut has been feeling. Um and I think I thought early on, and then I've gone back and forth, you know, sort of like the many stages of, of grief, as it were. And I wanted to go back to the Sasha piece, which really is not, in my view, AI, a large language model uh, run by a company generating a poem. It's, it's a poet in conversation with herself using... Um, you know, using a tool that she's trained on her own words, that to me is sort of a, I, I won't say next level, but it's an art form in its own. It's not a, um, it's not a bastardization of an art form or, or, a, or a computer, uh, you know, like a, um, you know, tur turning over our creativity to an AI. I, I think it's beautiful the way you described what she's done. Um, and this, this notion, I think I posted on your um, on a response to Mark's comment on my comment on your comment, uh, Katie, on, on the net that the um, um, Shylock's line from Merchant of Venice, which gets at the like what is embodied that cannot be at this point recreated by a large language model. Um, 
Um, and, you know, I, I just can't imagine a computer large language model uh, tapping the notion of the relationship between tickling and mortality. Um, so the, uh, um, there, there's that. So that, that, that's really what I wanted to say is that Sasha is has sort of taken poetry and and added to it, not subtracted to it by uh, from it with her intensive work. Um, I also I saw uh, an example of a AI trying to generate bluegrass music. Once again, non-commercial music uh, that doesn't have a lot of training algorithms, and it took this guy hours and hours to write a verse of bluegrass music which was essentially something he could have done in 10 minutes. Um, but he, he wanted to do it with AI, and it was just iteration after iteration, and him choosing what was pleasing to him. Um, so it did not instill any fear in me when I heard that. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, I think as Edward touched on, I want to make sure, too, with this space that we cover, since we did call it artificial intelligence, not just chat GPT. I know as poets and writers in here, that is our primary interest. But the NFT side of this is, of course, that AI art is used very, very widely in NFTs. And to be honest, when I first got <laughs> into NFTs, um, when I first started looking at them, like as of a few years ago, I was like, I don't understand how everybody's making this art so fast. I did not understand that a lot of it was AI generated art. And then, of course, there is the ability to take AI art and use it not only in like NFTs and in digital mediums, but I believe Cries, Mark Fitzpatrick's book, Twilight Maps and Other Poems, he was saying in a previous space, I believe that you use AI art as the artwork within your book of poetry. So cries, I would love to hear from you. And I'm sorry we haven't gotten to you before now in this space. Oh, it's been fascinating. I've really enjoyed listening to everyone's perspectives. Um, yeah, Twilight Maps, that uh, it was more the, the writing itself that I collaborated with AI. I've, I've been using it for a few years. And um, I guess similar to, to Sasha in a way, and it sounds like other people like Edward's doing too, where like I'll, I've been using, um, it's called InferKit, which is based off of a GPT model and just prompting it with, with um, portions of language that I really enjoy, like whether it's a, a snippet from a Sylvia Plath poem or like a paragraph from one of Cormac McCarthy's books that, you know, something that sings a little bit and just speaks to me. And then, you know, I'll feed it into AI and just see what comes out. And it's almost like, it's kind of like this feeling of walking into the world's greatest, you know, arts and crafts store and just looking at a wall full of colors you've never had access to and just, you know, having the money to buy whichever ones you want. And it would just sort of spit out these turns of phrase. And ultimately what I found myself doing is I'd, I just cherry pick turns of phrase that fit the mood or, or ambience that I was trying to capture. And what it ended up spitting out was, um, you know, the poem would end up usually miles away from what I got from from the AI. But like that that process was so helpful. So as a tool, like I, I couldn't be more excited about AI for people that wanna wanna kind of reach the best versions of what they're capable of producing artistically or, you know, people that just never considered themselves, you know, artists to begin with, just being able to 
you know, uncover an aspect of their humanity that was, you know, here for two kind of hidden from them. So I'm, I'm really comfortable with it as a tool. And I think that part of that, one of the things I think I've kind of learned through this space as I've been listening is that I really don't care too much about other people's poems. Like, as, I don't know what, if that's a hot take or not, but there's certainly some poems I really enjoy from other people. And, but I find for me, poetry, I guess it's kind of a, akin to what Tim was mentioning. Like it's a very spiritual exercise. And I find myself going back and reading my own poems and just trying to maybe relive or recapture that meaning, that moment of meaning creation. Because for me, that's, that's kind of the magic of poetry. And I find AI just kind of helps that process along for me. So whether, you know, in the, in the wild, I find a poem that I like that someone posted on social media or, you know, a curator like Tim has found and, and presented to the world at large, like, you know, that's all great. But I think for me, poetry is a, about something a little bit different, which is just the, the act of creation. So that's kind of my two cents on, on AI. And yeah, Twilight Maps has a lot of those kinds of bits of AI kind of helping me along. But ultimately, I think it was uh, more like just a helpful tool than me presenting poems that I'd, I'd written um, by pressing a button. It was a very fulfilling experience. Yeah, I think we can pull back um, and not just talk about you know, poetry, but art in general, by just recognizing that art is the creation of meaning from the chaos of experience. You know, it's, it's building that order out of chaos and walking the line between the yin and the yang to pull out new reality and, uh, and expand consciousness. And that's what all art does, whatever, no matter what it is. I think the real danger of, um, of all this artificial intelligence, all these tools, is that it's so easy to fool ourselves that they're doing that when they're not. Um, one of the things I brought up in my thread was um, the Eliza effect, which is a kind of pareidolia, pareidolia which is um, that, that human tendency, you know, we're, 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 we're programmed through sort of our evolutionary software to recognize things like faces. And so we see the face in Mars or we see Jesus in toast or Elvis, you know, in our, in our meatloaf or whatever. And, um, and there's the same thing we're, we're programmed to see consciousness. And so somebody, I think it was maybe George was talking about ants having a kind of consciousness when they go into the collective, but there's a way that we're projecting that onto it to, um, to, to we're, we're anthropomorphizing this, this ant colony by thinking that it has that kind of behavior. And I think there's a really strong tendency to do that, which is something we have to resist when we're confronting this AI. And the Eliza effect was so interesting to read about. This was way back in 1966, one of the very first chatbots. Um, its only function was to rephrase questions like a therapist would at the time. So if you'd say like, you know, I feel lonely because my friends are gone. They would say, you know, why do you feel lonely? You know, it would just rephrase everything you said as a question. And the researchers that were working on this started to feel like the uh, the chatbot had sentience um, just because it was having these computer things because we were recognized. Like if we see three dots, we see two eyes and a mouth and all of a sudden it's a face. If we see any kind of human-like behavior, we're, we think that it's going to be um, sentient and conscious and alive. And I think there's a real threat um, to think that this is more than it is and to treat what, what it's generating as more than it is and to think that we can just you know, outsource our, our meaning making to the AI because it's generating things that look like poems and, and we don't get the actual experience. Similar to, you know, we mentioned that, um, that Dick was a teacher, you know, and a big fear is that they'll write essays, that, you know, have the AI write essays and then they won't be learning the material. And the real risk is that you don't learn the material, that you don't get the positive experience of meaning making 
and we don't make actual meaning. We make just this sort of word of meaning. And, um, and I think that's the real, real threat that we'll outsource our own meaning making to AI and then we'll lose that, that really fundamental human experience. Well, that's super interesting. See, I think that we can't outsource it in terms of, I think that what we do is we look at the AI and then, you know, with this sort of other perspective we have on AI as the other, we look at that and then actually I think that it leads to us becoming more human because we're looking for, well, you screwed up there, chat GPT, you're not human. And then therefore it, it makes it more easy to define what it is to be human because we finally have an example of something that's not you know, that's, that's really right up there with us in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think it's so important that we use it, that, that, that we use it in the right ways, that we use it for our own, um, like, uh, like Cries does, like Sasha does, like Edward does, to, to have us be the curators of that content and to find our own meaning and to surprise ourselves with it. But we can't talk about this without talking about uh, Strange Horizons, I believe. Is it Strange Horizons or is it Clark's World? I guess it's Clark's World the science fiction journal Clark's World, shut down submissions recently because they were getting so many um, AI written stories and, you know, they pay. So there's kind of like a grifting industry going on where you just have AI generate a bunch of stories, submit them to Clark's World, hoping to get your 500 bucks or whatever they pay because they pay a good amount. And, um, and, and so there's a way that we can, a lot of people are going to be fooling themselves into saying, oh, I'm just entering this. I'm writing poems. I'm going to pass it off as my own poem. People are going to praise me. Because the truth is, um, if we're not if we're not making art for that real genuine reason of growing our own consciousness and expanding our spirit, um, you know, the other motivation is just the pat on the back and the like, oh, good job, you know, that little tiny dopamine reward. And we get that even if we're passing off a fake poem that, that we didn't write as our own. And there's be tons of that going on. And so, um, so I think that's an actual danger of people not using it for that reason. And so, um, so I think it, it can be used as a tool for good. It's going to be used as a tool for, um, for that, that emptiness too. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. I think that too, maybe the lesson is don't pat on the back if there's a bad poem, because we don't want to reward, reward bad poetry that might be written by AI also. So maybe that's part of it as well. But Mark, I'd be curious, Mark Janowski, I should specify, because we have two amazing Marks as speakers tonight. Um, Mark Janowski, I'd be curious, when you updated your submission guidelines to make it known that they couldn't be AI generated, were you getting a lot of a lot of those kinds of submissions or what was it that prompted you to go ahead and do that? No, that was totally preemptive. Um, I don't know that it's actually happened at all yet. Um, there was one where I thought maybe it was a possibility. Um, and... I'm almost reluctant to say. I, I think it's because it's someone that maybe is bilingual in that situation. And um, I was thrown a little by their use of language. And though it seemed good, it also seemed like there were some unusual errors or mismatches in language. Um, what I just wanted to throw in, and perhaps this sounds super basic, uh, but it just seems related to the whole conversation is, um, you know, the idea of like a human turned cyborg, which has been such a thing for a long time. I think people often point to like, as soon as we invented glasses, um, but then every 
next invention, there always seems to be a bit of moral panic. Sorry, my mic was having some issue where I couldn't actually unmute it for some reason for a second. So, all right, let's hear from the other Mark about that now, <laughs> Mark Fitzpatrick. <laughs> yeah, so um, I just wanted to follow up on what Tim was mentioning about this um, this urge for humans, which of course I'm not immune to being one, is this need for pats on the back. It's a uh, it kind of ties back into the the chess, I guess, aspect of AI we were talking about about a little bit, in that um, it's a huge problem in chess too. Like I'm a bit of a chess enthusiast. I, I suck, but I, I enjoy the the game. But these like these chess uh, online sites, they're inundated with cheating, and it's interesting because there's no money in chess. Like there's there's a little bit sure if you're at the very tip top of the pyramid, like the point zero zero one percent, but there's just it's rampant like the number of people that use chess engines to to try and beat their opponents online for no other gain than seeing their their chess rating go up so i i certainly don't envy the um i guess the editors and curators out there that are for genuine content like however we want to define that when it's you know there's going to be this arms race of um ai generated content and then AI, gen, AI um, I guess, helpers to try and detect that content. It's, um, yeah, it doesn't seem like, even if there's no economic uh, upside to it for writers, uh, it's, I don't think it's going to be something that'll stop people from trying to get that pat on the back. So uh, more an observation than, than anything. But uh, yeah, I certainly don't envy their job in the, in the years to come. Yeah, i just say, um, you know, I agree. And that's an interesting example from chess, but it's going to happen because people want just that validation, even though it's false validation, has social merit, which ends up, um, you know, feeding into our drives. And so I haven't seen it in Rattle, in Rattle yet, but I think one of the things I can foresee, sadly, is it might be the end of free submissions. Because if you have unlimited number of submissions um, and people can just keep going, you know, if you have to pay 3 or $4 every time, it disincentivizes uh, using AI to try to just flood the system with fake poems to get your your uh, pat on the back and your 200 bucks from Rattle. Um, so it might be that even though I, I said I promised I would never have a submission fee, it could get to the point where I have to just to um, slow down that barrage of fake poems, unfortunately. So that especially, you know, Mark Banowski here, one art who just takes them by email too. Um, it, it, it forces you to not take email poems if you have a thousand. I mean, imagine if waking up, Mark, and having a thousand poems submitted because someone made a bot to use AI to generate poems and then, you know, send from bot generated email addresses <laughs> all the new poems that generate. I mean, it's something that somebody could do tomorrow. And it might just end, you know, it just, you know, changes the way a whole bunch of systems. I mean, we haven't talked about it at all about the way, you know, copy editing and proofreading are going to be gone. So many jobs. Um, you know, just going to be gone because of this. And there's going to be so much displacement, hopefully displacement toward making more art somehow. Hopefully we can help steer the world in that direction. But um, it's going to change a lot of things. And one of the things might just be, I can't have free submissions anymore at some point. So, so keep an eye out for that. Well, let's hope it doesn't come to that. I know that you love being able to have free submissions. But let's hope that, uh, that we don't get to that point, but I can see the rationale certainly behind it. We had in poker, I always am hesitant to mention poker, but there was a, at various points, different problems with bots, you know, that were uh, playing very basic strategies and like low stakes games. 
Um, and eventually just what happened with it is a, the poker sites, you know, became more wise and, and started being able to actually ban software that they were using to build the bots, but also, uh, they just became exploitable. You know, it, it became known that this was playing a very basic style that was beatable. And so, I mean, you know, the good poems are definitely going to rise to the top, I think, uh, in the same way. So let's go ahead. Edward has his hand up again. I'd love to hear from you and see what you have to add now. Well, so I think that this is a, just a really, you know, interesting aspect of the topic that's that's very applicable to us as writers. Um, and I'll just observe that from a reader's perspective, you know, I uh, one of my things I do on the side is I I read for the Harvard Review. So um, tons of people send in uh, short fiction and, and some essays, and those have to get read by a, a panel of volunteer readers. And a very, very small handful will make it to the editors for who will select a small handful of that. And the interesting thing is um, we don't need AI to submit bad writing because humans are doing plenty of that on their own. Um, you know, and I say bad writing, you know, objectively, you know, I look at the credentials of these people who are submitting it and, and many of them have written for uh, some pretty good publications. But then sometimes you look at some of these stories and, you know, there's just some you know, the tropes or the men writing women or just strange stuff that you at that level, I, it surprises me that many of my, you know, kind of editorial decisions aren't that hard. Um, that out of 50 stories, there really are about two that really speak to me. And there's maybe two that I'm like, oh, I really wish I could give this an upvote, but but maybe I got half and half it. But so many of the ones that I that I turn down as just a reader, just like, they're just not doing what good literature is supposed to do. So, yeah, I don't think that um, – and the idea that, that somewhere there are people who are actually just sending out 500 poems because they want to get a pat on the back, that to me is strange. But I think that the idea of, of paying some small price uh, – and, and Tim Ferriss, I think, suggested the possibility of doing it for email. Would you be as quick to send as many emails if it cost you a little bit to, to take someone's time? Um, and that was another way to beat sort of botting. And then uh, Katie Poker sort of has that with blinds and um, the uh, the structure where you put a little something in the pot um, to to play uh, at, at some levels, um, because then now you're only doing it if you're serious or semi-serious. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, I mean, it's my experience too as an editor that I don't know, 5% of submissions, you know, you have the, most of them you could read from across the room, just seeing the words <laughs> and not even reading. And that's just the fact of it. I don't know how to explain it to anybody who hasn't done it, but you flip through so fast. People ask, how do you read, uh, you know, 500 poems a day? And it's because the average poem is literally like three seconds. And um, the, another fascinating thing along this topic is that you could so easily, you could have years ago built an AI just based on the data set that I have insubmittable to do the reading job, um, you know, because it has what I selected as a maybe and what we actually published and all the things that we, you know, even the time that it took to, to you know, all you need is a really simple machine learning algorithm and could filter out all the pre-screening. So I just have to read the top 5%. Um, I actually did that once years and years ago um, with um, just using, because I had Google, I had email submissions like Mark does. And back in the day, Google had ads in the email. And if you remember that, and if you clicked on a message, um, you would um, get an ad based on the content of that message. Um, and so there were keywords and things. And I thought, I, I wondered if I could um, filter emails just by looking at the content 
of the uh, ads that the the poems inside the emails generated, if that makes sense. And so I didn't actually do it to pick poems, but I, as a, like a sort of test set, just played around with the idea, and it actually worked pretty well. Uh, things that had interesting ads ended up being interesting poems. And so that's as easy as, as the um, algorithms are in making uh, making these decisions for us. So it's just fascinating the uses that we have and the things, the amount of jobs that's going to be displaced and the amount of disruption that's coming is huge, even if it's not sentient. And uh, the amount of, I just, don't, I just hope we don't displace the human spirit, I guess, is the, <laughs> the end of the day comment. Yeah, Mark, you have your hand up. You can go ahead. Yeah, so two quick things. One is that um, this just brought back a really old memory. The first poem I ever wrote was, uh, you know, a couple decades ago, sitting at a desk in, you know, some corporate job where, you know, part of that of sitting at a desk is you get spam email that you've got to get out of the way before you actually do the rest of your job. But I remember seeing, like, they used to, uh, in spam email, they used to put at the bottom of the email just, like, just garbage word, you know, selections and try to beat the whatever filter you had on. And I remember being inspired to write my first poem based on seeing just some really interesting uh, language choices in the bottom of these spam emails that I ultimately culled and made into my first, you know, admittedly pretty crappy poem, but it was, uh, I don't know, it was the start of something. Anyway, so um, I think I wouldn't be a good crypto citizen if I didn't you know, raise my hand and I'm not going to go so far as to say, you know, Bitcoin fixes this, like that's, you know, that old phrase. But um, I think um, cryptography in general, like email is one of those things that's, you know, it's free to send. Um, it sounds like Tim might be onto something with your pay to submit, but um, having to uh, send submissions, you know, through blockchain technology where you're paying, uh, network fees or gas fees to to get them from you know your hands into whoever's um, receiving wallet you want, like that could be you know the you know the future version of you know please send through email to try and um, calm down the bots. Like it's not there's a lot of you know it's a deeper conversation, but uh, there, there might be some crypto solutions to this problem uh, in the years to come. Well, I definitely agree with this. And it's been a while since I've heard Bitcoin fixes this. So thanks for that, Mark. <laughs> Glad to hear that catchphrase circle into the poetry space. So with it being almost an hour, I thought we should do something where we haven't actually looked at the poetry that Chat GPT has created. And so while I live in horror of somebody tuning in and thinking that I'm reading my own poem as I read this, I feel that it makes sense to go ahead and look at this poem. And then if we have time, I also have a poem that I wrote about AI that was recently curated by Mark Danowski in one art that I thought might be kind of fun to look at as well, if it's not me monopolizing the space too much. So you guys have to promise that you don't forget that ChatGBT wrote this poem. Okay, so I entered the prompt, please write a short poem to end the poetry space on the Twitter space with. And this is what it gave me, okay? It's in quatrains, not surprisingly, because that's all ChatGPT does. And by the way, I want to say too, anybody can play around with ChatGPT. If you have not, it is incredibly fun. I do it with my daughter's homeschool all the time. We like laugh about it and it's great. But here, without further ado, is ChatGPT's poem about how to close out the poetry space. As the poetry space draws to a close, we bid farewell, but not adios. 
for words and verses linger on and inspire us to carry on. In every stanza, every rhyme, we found a moment frozen in time. Oof. A fleeting thought, a heartfelt cry, a glimpse of beauty passing by. So let us hold these moments dear and keep them close forever near. For in the poetry that we create, we find our voice, our soul, our fate. Now, I actually kind of like the ending rhyme, I'm not going to lie, even if we went obviously hyperbolic because chat GPT has big middle school emotions it needs to get out there. I think we all are aware of. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for sharing that, Katie. Do you want to finish up? Do you have a poem to uh, read too? So we can sort of cleanse our palate from the uh, artificial sweetener. Let's hope that that's what this does. So this poem was written uh, because I like to do this thing when I go on a plane, which I will be doing on Tuesday to head to New York again, where I ask for prompts and then I write poems about them. And this prompt actually came from you, Tim, where you sent me this epigraph and then I wrote a poem around it. And then Mark Danowski curated it recently with One Art. And it's basically me imagining AI as an unpleasant uh, plane partner who's sitting by me in the plane. So it's called, I head to the plane, I, I know, <laughs> I head to the bathroom in a plane accompanied by a migraine. And then it begins with the epigraph sent from Tim, which is, art is not a mirror held up to reality, but a hammer with which to shape it by Bertold Brecht. AI claims my armrest. The kid behind me plays soccer with my feet. There is a pounding in my head and on and on it drums the sum of loud rhymes. AI gave me gum, then spit out that art is dead. Instead, consider time, I said. It beats, yes, but that beats a sign, a pulse, a wave, a blue water flush. When two mirrors reflect each other, where does that wind up? Smash the glass with a hammer and write with all the dust. So hopefully you guys think that was better than the chat GPT poem. Otherwise, this whole space has been for naught, and we're now rooting for AI to take over Terminator style preferably with Arnold Schwarzenegger in tow, I would say. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we all say that we, uh, we prefer your poem, Katie. <laughs> I will take the low-hanging fruit compliment. I guess Mark liked it since he, <laughs> since he curated it, at least I know that. So thanks to you guys so much. And Tim, do you want to tell everybody what we're going to be talking about next week? Next week, we are going to be doing it live from New York City for uh, <laughs> NFT NYC. So uh, we'll be talking about the conference and uh, I don't know, I, I'm mostly I'm going, we have a panel with, uh, with Sasha um, and, uh, and Katie here uh, at the conference, but I'm mostly interested in learning more because it's still a, a whole topic that's new to me. There's some areas I know a little bit about and others I don't. So I'm fascinated. We'll talk about what's going on there. There's a lot of uh, literature going on too, outside of the conference too. So we'll be uh, talking about our experience there and uh, doing it live from NFT NYC. Yeah, and in case anybody has any doubts, I'm going to take the opportunity at the beginning of Tech Space to pretend that I'm on SNL and going to shout live from New York. And considering, Tim, we might be like sitting in Central Park doing the space together, I'm sure we're going to annoy some people, but hopefully you guys will be happy and we'll be there. So thanks so much to everybody for coming and speaking today. You guys all had such great input and I learned a tremendous amount as always. So thank you. Yeah, thanks everybody. Great. We'll see you next week live from New York. <laughs> Bye.